welcome to Pod Avant-Garde. I'm Andrea Gazetta. I'm Katrina Davis. And I'm Jordan Lee Williams. And today we're going to talk about... Lorraine O'Grady. Whoa, whoa! Yay! I'm so excited. I know um, nothing I'm... about this, so I'm so excited to learn. Cool. Exactly, Okay, me well, too. heads up. There's going to be more like we'll see <laughs> if you want to do a two parter or if we want people to look on their own. But like there is so much about this woman for her to have started when she started. It's dumb. Like, OK, it's, yeah. So um, we'll get into it. And I feel like I keep accidentally picking people just like not 100 percent random, but like, oh, I know a little bit about this artist not even a little bit about this artist. I've I've been picking artists based off being like aggressively drawn to one thing that I saw that they've done. Mm-hmm. And then be like, oh, I like that. Let me learn about this person. And then I'm like, oh no, we're the same person. So. Um, <laughs> I love it. Like, like, not like I literally am Marina at all, but learning about her, I was like, are you kidding me? How am I gonna be on the same page with this bizarre person so much and here we go again so um Lorraine O'Grady was born in Boston Massachusetts in 1934 to Jamaican parents who helped establish St. Cyprian the first West Indian Episcopal Church in Boston um she recalls being drawn to the forms of aesthetics of the high church that was um, nearby. I was permanently formed by the aesthetics of that experience of the rituals, which are a more stately and elegant version of Roman Catholicism. Mm. She also credits the murals at the Boston public library at the, as the first time she saw figures of mythology, which will make sense, which will be more relevant later. But um, she, um, she said, quote, my mother was a big fan of letting the library babysit. Um, she was from the West Indies and was very proud of having grown roses in Jamaica. So she would take us to Fenway to see the Rose Garden. And then from there, the museum was close by. Um, and that was the first place I saw Egyptian art when I was around four or five. So these are all of these very early art connections that are going to make, um, more sense later. But she was, um, basically, um, not immediately, but when we start learning about her, even as a child, very aware of kind of an otherness to herself. Mm. Um, So she mentions the first time she laid eyes on the works of Gauguin around the same time, she was enamored by the French writing she didn't understand. Um, The mythology, Mm. aesthetics of writing on canvas and the city she grew up in are, quote, all a part of what I do now. So that'll also make more sense later. and I can't get into what she does quite yet because Lorena Grady lived a whole life before she became an artist. So Sweet. she was one of she was one of three black women in Wellesley College's 1955 class of 500. She wow. majored in e- <laughs> yeah she majored in economics with a minor in Spanish literature. Um, Damn, she- that time that's so especially incredible. Yes, like this woman is so, and I've listened to her speak now so many times that like she speaks 
like someone and I don't mean like big words like she speaks with such understanding I feel like her brain can so simply kind of like dissect these very elaborate nuances of society and things like that and the way she speaks about them I can totally see her being one of three black women to be in this class of 500 um so after graduating college, she worked for five years as a young intelligence officer for the Department of Labor and State, first on African and then on Latin American affairs. Wow. Jesus. During that period, <laughs> during that period, she was forced to read 10 national and international newspapers a day. Um, and this was leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you oh ever just God. feel like, what? like, oh, I should be more like, have you ever just heard about yes. someone else's life? Okay, absolutely. <laughs> but I have also, I'm trying to practice the radical, radical acceptance of like, my brain doesn't do this shit. Yeah. Absolutely. I had to read the stuff that I had to read just to learn this about her is proof to me that I will never read 10 newspapers a day. Yeah. One of them <laughs> in a second language. Like I'm not going to put that on myself. Um, yeah. But three complete daily transcripts in Spanish of Cuban radio stations, as well as endless overnight classified reports from agents in the field. So wow. she would later say that this would kind of like, um, she had a very funny way of saying it that basically said like it turned language into like a goo for her. Like words meant nothing because she had to read them so much. Like when I read the quote, it made me think of Alex Mack when she gets nervous and turns into like <laughs> silver slime on the ground. Like she had to read words so much that she was like, these mean nothing to me anymore. So can be, it makes sense to like, especially if you are switching between languages a lot where eventually, like, mm -hmm. especially with Spanish, I find that I, l I know a little bit of Spanish, not a lot, but sometimes I'll read Spanish words. And because you know Spanish, mm. like now certain like Portuguese and Italian and French words like make more sense to you, even though mm, you yes. don't, re you aren't really fluent in those languages. So just exposure to other things can sort of make your brain just be like, yeah, I kind of understand all of this, but I kind of don't understand anything anymore. <laughs> like, Right. It's all and nothing at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So she did that for five years. And then um, in 1977, at those, she started taking classes at the School of Visual Arts in New York, where a... Um, so how oh, old no, is no, she no. now? She's... Taking, teaching. This is 1977. Okay. So she is... So she's 43. Wow. And she, so she just worked there for four years. Art classes? Okay. So, yes, <laughs> because I'm going to go back to some other things that she did. Because she okay. also was a um, critic for Rolling Stone. She wrote an early what? review. <laughs> she uh, wrote an early review. Um, the night that Bob Marley and the Whalers opened for Bruce Springsteen uh, at Max's Upstairs in Manhattan in 73. And it was rejected at the time by the Village Voice editor who said it was, quote, too soon for these two. So I did. Sorry, I told you wow. I was reordering stuff. This is so this was what she did. Had like she did the other thing for five years and was like, OK, well, I can write. But I like I guess even living she was living in New York. So this okay. happened. 
Um, <laughs> she um, now, and this will also be a theme that like everything she does is fantastic and not at all recognized at the time. So even this oh, article, God. like her working at Rolling Stone is probably the first indication of her having a um, vision artistically and for the future and a voice that no one around her is ready to recognize yet. Um, oh, because, uh, oh no, see, that's later too. It's like she did all of these things. Okay, so she worked as... Uh, um, she worked at Rolling Stone and then went to the School of Visual Arts in New York and taught a class in futurist, data, and surrealist literature that attracted students like John Sex, John McLaughlin, and Keith Haring. Wow. So that's just another little blip. And this is all before... <laughs> this is the timeline. So 80s rock critic... That seems to be, it's like she, the military kind of melted her brain to words and then she quit that and then had a biopsy on her right breast that proved negative, but okay. she was sitting in bed recovering um, and took a bunch of newspapers to make a thank you note for her doctor. And that ended up being... Um, um, that she said uh, she forced randomness back in, back into meaning and it rescued a personal sensibility from public language, that public language had swamped. So basically her having this biopsy, the fear of possibly having breast cancer, realizing that she didn't, and I guess organically turning to these newspapers to write her thank you note spawned these... Um, works that you may or may not have seen before of course this is the one thing i didn't send you a picture of hold on i'm gonna try to put it close enough to do it yes can you see yeah kind of it's a little blurry but uh, oh it looks i don't need you to see the words because the words it's not like the actual thank you there's other ones but basically i want you to see that this is where she um first starts doing diptychs so mm -hmm. that is a large part of where some of her work will go later. She kind of starts in diptychs and then goes back to another kind of um, installation that I'm going to talk about and then goes back to diptychs later. Okay, but and not to be first. this person, but I do want to just define diptychs for people if they oh, don't yes. know. Oh, so, that's great. Uh, most commonly you'll hear about a triptych, which is a three panel piece that opens and closes. A diptych is a two panel piece, generally with a hinge that will open and close. Uh, you see it most commonly in like old picture frames. If your grandparents had right. the, the wedding photos where it was the two photos together and they could angle it at like a right angle and, it would stand right. on I have own. a painting, especially an altar piece, on two hinge wooden panels, which may be closed like a book um, yeah. or yeah. an ancient it, writing tablet um, with waxed inner sides. It can but, also, in, in art now, it can also just refer to two panels that are 
a pair essentially so like i have will often work in series and will often work in like a diptych even though they're painted on separate panels they work together to create one idea or to fulfill one idea so they're shown together always yes right so Mm -hmm. this will be a theme that she kind of keeps going throughout her art um at least honestly second where are we in the timeline when she is doing these the the first set of diptychs because the work especially with the newspaper font Mm -hmm. reminds me so much of barbara kruger and i don't know how their art kind of goes together let me see what year this I was going to say it, it's very Dada. It well, is. is. It absolutely is. Also gets confusing when I'm looking at stuff because she made all of these things and none of the exhibits are until the 2000s. Like all of the actual places okay. that these things came up are way later. So I don't necessarily have a time. Like I have a timeline of her blowing up later and all of these things kind of getting. Come totally time. fair. Visibility at the same time. Exactly. No, so, and I actually creating. just refreshed but not necessarily like showing everything she's created in this time. Exactly. So and um, I just refreshed so my Barbara Kruger timeline because I didn't want to misspeak on this. And Kruger, yeah. her main works start in the late eighties. So this okay, is so not uh, right. That's right before where we're at. So she um, d- teaches her class works at Rolling Stone, um, pursued a master's degree in fiction from the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. Jesus. And then in 1980, at the age of 45, that is when she calls like becoming an artist. So once entering the world of art, O'Grady became an active voice within the alternative New York art world of the time and uh in addition to addressing feminist concerns her work tackled cultural perspectives that had been underrepresented during the feminist movements of the 1970s creating a space for black women in a world where they were for the most part misrepresented marginalized or erased so wow from everything that i just not necessarily in a perfect timeline explained. She says, quote, when I entered the art world in 1980, I found a world I was shocked by. It was almost like the civil rights movement hadn't happened at all. I lived yes. a very full life before I began. I had many other worlds to compare the art world to. So I was able to see it more clearly. Yeah. Um, so. And that's this what I want to tell these, you know, not to again interrupt, but I just. I have talked to so many people who, you know, they went to art school at 18 and then by 22 they were like, okay, I have everything figured out. And I'm like, but what have you done? Like, where have you lived? What have you experienced? How many things have you done? But it's also, it's so refreshing to see stories of women who didn't get started in these passions and these things that people say, well, if you're not a prodigy, then you shouldn't even bother. Like most Mm -hmm. people I have talked to, they're like, well, I'm too old to start that now. And I'm like, no, you're not. 
You're never yep. too old to start that. Fucking do something. Right. If, it, if it brings you joy, follow it. Yep. I think in any sort of art experience, like the there is something that you need, which is a, a voice and a point of view. And I feel like people don't know who, who they are until they're older. And so yeah. having outsider perspectives, I think, is just so important. I think that happens in comedy, too. I don't think yep. oh, most yeah. people when That's they start in 18. Thinking. Like Bo Burnham is definitely an outlier and a prodigy in many ways. But most people who start stand up when they're 18, they don't have anything to say. They're fucking they don't know anything. They're children still. So it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I mean, my therapist, she's like, you're not an adult until you're 30. <laughs> And Bo didn't have a special that blew us all away when he was 18. He started and then was good and was a grown man that then created, you know, a very artistic, you know what I mean, version of something that he had at that point been doing for a decade. Like that's, I think, the comedy thing is that people start and I feel like they kind of will dismiss the whole 10 year thing and like you're saying everyone has totally different trajectories and things like Mm -hmm. that but and you can study and practice and come from different worlds and have all other kinds of experiences but I think there's definitely something to be said about like the experiences that you can gain even from doing it five years and then you know what I mean being like this is my thing or I have an hour worth of uh, things that people need to hear and that whole thing. Um, Absolutely. It's really hard to be patient with yourself. I think that's also why I love a lot of her story so much is that um, she immediately loved art. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure she had a lot of other functionalities to her life that made her kind of note thinking of her upbringing Jamaican culture and what role education can play in that space and just knowing what your options are being a black woman at that time so like knowing that she always loved art but was still excelling in all of these other ways and when it came to be she was just super ready for it is yeah kind of awesome I'm um, really excited for you to tell us more because I peeked into some of her artwork and it's really cool so I'm excited (laughs) yeah okay so yeah we're about to get into some cool shit I have one more brag about her before uh our pitcher start so in 1983 she received two fellowships one from the New York State Council um on the arts and one from the National Endowment for the Arts It was around this time that she created the persona that would be responsible for her disruptive introduction into the art world. Um, Mademoiselle Bourgeoisie Noir, which I think she says way better, or Miss Black Middle Class. So now if you think... So now if you can click your pictures that I sent you, the first one is just a self-portrait of her writing at a typewriter. Um, she still very much looks like this. Like she has like her little old lady face looks a little bit thinner, but she looks pretty much the same. Like I love her so much. Um, she's so pretty. I was going to say she's really pretty. (laughs) She's so beautiful. She very much the same. Like her eyes, everything. Like when you hear her speak now, she looks, she looks exactly the same. Um, so the next also, picture is this is such a like dadaist thing like you can see the through line between this this public performance of 
creating <gasps> a character that she is now going out and like these dresses and the sash and the whole costume like it's just so interesting to see the the influence uh you know and the fact that she taught this class on the dadaist literature like you can see it yeah so this um piece that these next couple pictures are of uh is she gave timid black artists and thoughtless white institutions a quote piece of her mind with an unannounced appearance at linda good Brian's just above midtown gallery in tribeca a black avant-garde space um mbn that's what i'm gonna call mademoiselle bourgeoisie <laughs> noir um wore a gown a cape made of 180 white gloves from Manhattan thrift shops, a sparkling tiara and a beauty queen sash. She first gave away flowers to the audience and gallery attendants asking, won't you help me lighten my heavy bouquet? Oh. Then beat herself with a white studded cat of nine tails, which she referred Jeez. to as quote, the whip that made the plantations move. Damn. She would simultaneously, <laughs> she would simultaneously, uh, <laughs> I love her so much because also, okay, here's another side note that I did not think of, but I did yeah. once dress as black vengeance for Halloween and just wear all black and carry a whip around and say, fuck your 40 acres on the back of my black sweatshirt. Damn. But no Katrina. one got it. <laughs> no one cared. Like literally no one cared. Katrina has um, been doing performance art her whole life and we never saw it as the avant-garde that it is. Like what, <laughs> what is happening? I love this. <laughs> No one cares, but I still have that whip because it's pretty solid. Um, but yeah, so Lorraine is out here whipping herself with a cat of nine tails. And while so she would after she passed out the flyers and of uh, flowers and whipped herself, she would simultaneously shout and protest poems that rallied against segregated art that excluded black individuals from the world of the mainstream. Um, yes, she decreed that I love she decreed her. the respectability politics that consumed the black American middle class and had them desperately striving to find some semblance of protection from the horrors of systemic racism that she is a daughter of Jamaican immigrants knew did not exist. Mm. So I have one of the things that she used to scream here and it's that's enough no more boot licking no more ass kicking no more posturing of super ass <laughs> super ass emulates so i think it's assimilates but it's ass and then emulates uh and then black art must take more risks and then she just left holy shit damn that's like a mic drop <laughs> yeah so she screamed that and then left. And she did this at four other art galleries and performances. Wow. These performances were initially deemed a failure because Was some she, say that art. Were these performances sanctioned by the galleries or was she just no. showing up places? She showed up un, unannounced. Yes. I love yes. this. And the first one was at a black art space. So wow. I don't know if that was because a bunch of like, even looking at the pictures, it's like a mixed group of people. There are, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but yeah, so she did four of those and some initially deemed them a failure because some say the um, art scene didn't become fully integrated mm -hmm. until 
Adrian Piper and David Hammonds um, did an exhibit in 88 and 89. Mm. Um, but she gives her um, like take calling some credit that a failure because I guess it was in 83 and those didn't happen until later. No, I know, but that's like saying that the civil rights I know. movement I, well, of okay, the 60s and I'll get into was a failure. Also. Like, I don't oh, know. Wait, I, no, no, no. I will say why in a second. Okay, but she oh, also okay. gives credit to a 1983 exhibit called The Black and White Show at the Ken Kaliba House, which was a black-run gallery in the East Village that showed works of 30 black artists alongside 30 white artists. And that happened in 83. So even people that are like, well, this one happened in 89, she's like, mm, there was another one that happened before that. But the reason, another reason they, I guess, are have, uh, giving pause to giving her credit for it is because no one for a while knew what these images were from. Like a main image of her whipping herself kind of got solidified in art culture and passed around with zero context for a while. Oh. Interesting. Two of the images of her beating herself with the whip and shouting her poem were widely reproduced without any ex explanatory concept. And that became a, um, added to the mystification and misunderstanding surrounding the work for a while, mm -hmm. which guess what year um, some of these were added to an installation. This happened in 83, I think. 2002? Added to an installation? Oh, not too bad. 91 is when some mm. of like the dress gets bought. Okay. And gets put in a gallery and people are like, what is up with this dress? What is going on? Possibly like, oh, my God, I saw that picture before. This is what this is about. So, mm. again, she kind of does these four exhibits. Everyone's kind of like, OK, that was wild. That no, it is in the art world. And then they kind of move on and what don't really give credit to that when things do become more integrated later in the 80s. Yeah. What's so interesting to me about this is that. It is, I, I think she's really railing against this idea that we need to ask for permission to be in spaces in which we're excluded. The yes. idea mm. that if you get in, it's this honor and you have to sort of play their game, play the colonizer's yes. game and all that other stuff. And it, she's just kind of like, fuck you. I'm going to just be here. And call you out. Right. And like that is such a brave thing to do because so many people would see it as the wrong way to get noticed or like become a part of the scene. Right. Or to as find a middle class, class black person. Yes. yes. Like yeah. the, go along to get along or like Absolutely. you're going to mess up what we already have. And I do feel like I'll, I have something on this later on, but I do think that her a little bit of otherness in maybe her Jamaican upbringing, being in Boston, like where she grew up, she talks a lot about, um, not really seeing herself possibly in the other black faces around her as much either until later on in her life. So I yeah. think that she possibly felt even more safe to do that because she was like, I'm also not a hundred percent over here either. So yeah. I feel more comfortable telling you that you could be kind of doing more Outside. for yourself and that you don't have to take what little bit they're giving you or whatever that looks like. 
Yeah, it's like, it, I, I think you're right. It's that concept of like, you're accepting scraps and we deserve a seat at the table. Right. Yes. So, and this kind of gets into the next work that I'm talking about, which is her going back to diptych. So when she was in her 20s, her sister passed away. Mm. And afterwards, she took a trip to Egypt. And this kind of is ties back to her seeing all of those Egyptian figures in the museum when she was younger and kind of seeing these things for the first time in real life. So um, it was two years after her sister Devania passed away. So she went to Cairo and found herself surrounded by the first time by people who looked like her. Um, well, for most people, this is a common occurrence. It was something who she had previously not felt in Boston nor Harlem. So while walking yeah. the streets of Cairo, the loss of her sibling became confounded with the images of a larger family she had gained. And when she returned to the States, she began making painstaking research of ancient Egypt, specifically through the Armana period of Nefertiti and Akin, Akinaton? I don't know if I'm saying that right. Action? Um, But in her words, I had uh, Action, sure. No, it says Akhenaton. Like that's technically if I went fully phonetic because there's an H. Akhenaton? Oh. Okay. I don't know. Um, But she said, I've, I always thought that Devania looked like Nefertiti, but as I read and looked, I found narrative and visual resemblances throughout both families. So wow. now we can go to the next picture. Right. Okay. So, and people, I have a couple of these, so you can scan through. Let's see. One, two, three. That's the her next, sister? Like, four. Or three. Yeah. One. Let me see the, let me see which one is her sister. I think it is this first one. Yes. That's the, wait, I think that is the Vanya who looks just like her. Cause I don't think she put herself in it. Um, I but mean, yeah. So beautiful. She talks like, just beautiful this is this is called miscegenated family album which is the word miscegenation was coined in 1863 when used for the post-civil war laws making interracial marriage illegal mm. um which mm. those are the ones that weren't struck down until 1967 um and she uh felt like she mentions a lot of times how people talked about it being kind of over the top to compare her family to the royalty and all these things. And even that kind of talking to the diminishing of black art and what that looks like. And her kind of saying, it's clearly not that over the top because she looks just like her. So yeah. what are you even talking about? Like the visual proves that it's not over the top because this is a mirror of my actual family. Um, and I will always bring this up, but Albert Durer painted himself as literal Jesus Christ. So, like, <laughs> I don't know if we can talk Who about being over the top. Who could have a bigger God complex? I don't think anybody <laughs> is over the top. I think this, too, speaks to the concept. I mean, especially around the era of the civil rights, there is sort of this idea of, like, being able to regain a sense of power and I think for centuries, white people especially have used the fact that they are in kingships or like, oh, I'm related to this prince or whatever as a way Absolutely. to sort of legitimize 
their power or their wealth or whatever else. And so I think that as a black person being able to say to trace your lineage did literal kings and queens and be like we look like these people this is our heritage like I think that's an important way to bring power back to yourself and to like oh yeah poke yourself in that so like this is a powerful well, it's like a part act. of your identity it's a part of your identity that most black people in America now that we're we've gotten, you know, more science and things like that. And people do DNA and all these different things or things like that. Or some people that you just happen to have someone in your family that super cares about it. You still Mm -hmm. can only get, but so far. And as someone that grew up in a place where people were constantly talking about, them being Irish or have Italian or I'm this or my yep. known as this and like having all of this information about who they were and having, well, my great aunt raised hogs in, in like Virginia and no one has birth certificates or pictures really. Um, and people are like traumatized and don't even keep things because they don't want to look at relatives and things like that or share memories and things like that. It's like, I don't have a lot of that identity. So, um, it's definitely something like even me looking at her, I see the other, I see myself doing the otherness to her as a black American where I'm like, Oh yeah, but your parents were Jamaican you were on a totally different thing like your economic status where you started everything was totally different than where my people my actual family would have been starting at the same time even so it even creates a little bit of the otherness that she's talking about in that in like Mm -hmm. the literal separation of like me being a descendant of slaves and you not being like I know people that brag about not being descendants of slaves because they're like oh my family didn't get caught you know what I mean Mm. like that's a thing. So, um, so yeah, yeah I feel like see, it, I didn't know. I mean, like I, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman, but growing up, my best friend was from Rwanda and, uh-huh. or no, I'm sorry. She was from Ethiopia was what it was. Um, but teachers would be like, so we're going to talk about slavery now. Hewan, it's your turn to tell us about your family. And she was like, my my parents came here in like 1992. So I don't really yeah. know what She's you're literally the about. girl in Mean yeah. Girls. I'm from Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't yeah, my shit. Like, leave me alone. Yeah, leave me out of this, bro. That's so, so like funny. I don't know. I'm so I'm I just my experience knowing people who have these experiences is the like don't just assume like I have no idea. And it's because yeah. she would get so upset. She's like, I didn't like they're singling me out because she was the only black girl at our school. Like, yeah, I grew up in a really white yep. town and you know the teachers would just be like and it was every fucking year the teachers would call on her and she'd be like that's not because they've like, never listened to what she said after it they were like exactly. i've already decided who you were i'm yeah. checking out on what i here's the thing i said your name and then i went on mute because i don't care about <laughs> this part of history so yeah. i did not hear you say that you're from ethiopia i'm so sorry <laughs> like yeah no they just had no and she was always just like why do they always want me to talk about my family history? Like, okay, we lived in Ethiopia and then we came here. Like, what is the... Yeah. 
I would love for her to have just been like, okay, so really short up top, I'm new. This is about Ethiopia. If you guys want to hear what you guys have been doing to all the other black people, <laughs> and just like, yeah, this is it. I guess we can all learn about this together. Like, <laughs> um, but everything that you uh, were saying, Andrea, about taking that power back is going to come up super gnarly in this next one. And it makes me so happy. So she's shaking things up. Everybody is like, eh, okay, she stormed these things, but who cares? Kind of. So um, Miss Bourgeoisie's next performance was um, a parade float that she entered in the annual African-American day parade in Harlem. Um, the float was shepherded by Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard. And she had a troop of 15 African-American and Latin performers dressed in all white walk and dance <laughs> alongside the float, carrying empty gold pitcher frames before members of the crowd. Um, mm. So It'll be, I think there's one misplaced picture of these and then, oh, sorry. There we go. If you scroll through a couple black and whites, you'll get to them. They're beautiful. These are really beautiful images. Okay, so this is the first thing I ever saw of hers. So this is why I'm learning so much about this woman is because of all these pictures. And I had to stop myself from showing you, I don't know, 15 of them because it's <laughs> probably one of my favorite series I've ever seen. Um, it's so joyful. And even learning about it, it makes me love it even more. Yeah. Exactly. So they literally are just going around. I especially love that she has chosen these antique gold frames that would generally be used for portraits of stuffy nope. old white people. <laughs> this this concept yeah. of like old art. It's like living Kehinde Wiley. Yeah. Like if you took yeah. the old frames that he uses. Um, but yeah, the Colt 45 one at the very end is another one that I think was one of the first ones I saw. The girl, There's like one girl. Yeah. Oh, so to explain these, they're basically great parade photos there's lots of people in them and the photos are of people framing themselves in the gold frame the outside gold in frames. the parade in harlem yeah so they're the turning gold themselves frame. So there's one into the art into the art mm -hmm. there's one of a black woman holding the frame up to herself looking at a tall white police officer and making mm -hmm. the funniest face I've ever seen and he's smiling also it looks like he's maybe asking about what's happening um so she's like goofing around with him and he's like entertaining yes. that playfulness Mm-hmm. So like this frame is legit breaking a barrier between a black woman at a parade and a police officer. Um, but people in the crowd started yelling, that's right. That's what art is. We're art. Frame me. Make me art. Aww. The performance was encouraged by onlookers, primarily people of col color um, and drew attention to racism in the art world. That is the, so Are you beautiful. crying, Jordan? Because I almost I did. <laughs> Cause I can hear people saying it. I can hear my dad saying that I can hear like that old, because there's one of like the uh, like pudgy black man who looks like he could be like the goofiest uncle. And they just put a frame around him and his like, 
tight 80s polo and he's got his camera too he also looks like someone that would be like documenting that day it's just like yeah. the most regular people out like the most it's definitely people you would see in your my black family album <laughs> My favorite photo is this dad with his baby on his shoulders and the woman holding the frame is smiling so beautifully. At the baby, yeah. And they just, everybody just looks so happy and it's true. Yeah. Our art. Like everything so. Trina, you made us both cry. Yeah, we're both (laughs) crying. It's fine. I see Andrea crying too. (laughs) Got you good nerds. No, I'm like, I almost did when I said that. I mean, I I think a lot of times we consider, especially right now, where we're at right now with this Roe v. Wade decision, there are protests in the streets and we are thinking of protest as preparing for violence and preparing to fight physically. But I think this is another form of protest that is about joy and about uplifting a -hmm. community in a way that Mm -hmm. is so beautiful and touching but it is still a form of mm-hmm. protest. So I, I think there's something just so beautiful about it. And I think it is so apropos of it's what's happening It's the flower right down now. the barrel of a gun. Absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely what it is. Yeah. I love it. But it's also like understanding that it, it's part of why Kahinda Wiley is so important is it's that understanding of like representation matters, seeing yourself in museums matters understanding that art doesn't have to look like the european aristocracy it matters to know that like just because you don't look like these people that this eurocentric racist classist museum system and art world has set up doesn't mean that you aren't art Mm-hmm. Um, so she said the parade idea came from wanting to expose the avant-garde to the largest number of black people I could find at one time. That was it. My first thought was just to put artworks on the float and let people look. Um, she said a woman had recently said to me that avant-garde doesn't have anything to do with black people. That was so infuriating to me. It's where the whole idea of the piece came from to do something that would prove this woman wrong. A piece about art in front of a million people. Of course, it didn't end up with them looking at art. They were more making the art themselves. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, yeah. Oh, especially too, I think Coolest that like galleries piece can ever. be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think galleries can be spaces that seem very pretentious and closed to certain people. And I think the idea of like opening it to the streets and being like, we're the gallery now. Fuck off. Like, I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, Andrea and I just went to two art shows recently, and I told you about my way of figuring out, like, is this a safe gallery space for me to exist in, is to crouch mm. and really get close to the piece. And, like, if I am, you know, crouched in this weird, undignified position experiencing art, and people are judging or being weird about it, then I'm like, oh, okay, you're not here to look at art. You're here to be near art and pretend that you're better than everyone. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you are judging the way that someone experiences art, then you aren't interested in it. You just want the recognition that you were there. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, but yeah, so these were published for the first time more than three decades after they were taken. Wow. Um, like so this is the timeline of, of the things. stuff that she's doing. She's just doing stuff. Um, That's because, incredible. uh, because she, and I'm going to talk about it more later. Cause there's a quote, but it's like, she just felt like I was doing stuff and no one was paying attention. So I just started doing it. You know what I mean? She, again, being an, uh, innovator, these are like around the same time, but like, she said, I'm still the person no one paid attention to for 20 years. I put up this website and all of a sudden people started to notice. So she was one of the first people to like learn about websites. She built her own website and archived all of her own work on it. And that's how a lot of people found this stuff. Dude, what the fuck? Then in the mid in the mid 90s that costume was purchased by peter and eileen norton and in 2007 it was positioned at the entry point to whack the art and feminist revolution the first ever museum exhibit of the originating period of the art so 2007 is when that dress was like on display as this piece that you look at it and you're like, what is that? And it was that and the images and everything put together. But the only thing that I could even find that's described as like having a way that she liked it shown before her website or anything is, um, miscegenated family that had like displayed with Egyptian art and they have like a description of the best way for that to be viewed in a gallery but like everything else is from the 2000s a lot of her shows all of that stuff wow so yeah she built her own website it's got all of her stuff on it she's a right okay this is the part that I couldn't get into because it would straight up be a part two but she has written some of the most amazing analysis analyses analysis analyses of analyses of um having to do with like black women and kind of the stereotypes and like the jezebel complex she names new ones for the mm. 90s like baby mama complex all of these stereotypes mm -hmm. that make black women wow. judge each other against themselves constantly just like breaking down the diaspora and all these ways she has all of these writings that uh, other people break down and like i was i had like writing and then like 10 more pages i was like i can't do this um <laughs> but she such an amazing gift and source of explaining the same things that we're dealing with. But like, I feel like she's one of the last people that has somehow managed to not get angry. Everything wow. that she does, like uh, she has another, um, artwork that I'll put when we put in the um in the when I put it on Instagram but it's mm -hmm. like black women in nature again framed in these more abstract ways and like sitting in a kitchen eating coconut or like all like it's a series of black like there's a young black girl reading by a creek it's like and so she's constantly just putting together even if it's not even if it's in one image a juxtaposition of things that are meant to i feel like ultimately be harmonious um, yeah there's one that I, just... I saw where there's this woman sitting outside and she's in this like white dress and there's this enormous yes. white frame and there's a white table yes. 
and she's like eating coconut. She's grating and eating coconut. And she has like perfectly manicured red fingernails, this perfect red lipstick. It's very like of this time, just high beauty, like high fashion. And she has these white sandals on and it looks like she has grated coconut all over the floor. Like she's sitting on it. And then she's just framed in the wilderness. And there's something like eerily beautiful that makes her almost look like this. white and red and brown. Yeah, she just (laughs) looks like a goddess who just appeared in, you just found her there in the wilderness. And like, I think the way that she is creating these frames outside. So you, instead of framing a photograph, she is saying like, we should frame these moments that we we see each other sort of mm. I think it's saying something about um how the ordinary can become extraordinary and she is using the frames like seeing that that the frame is inside the painting and then there's more life around it is like these things exist all around us all the time it's such a beautiful statement about finding the extraordinary in the ordinary or like creating these moments and finding these moments yeah that one is the woman in white grates coconut in her kitchen with the fir palm tree outside and there it's a part of the river's first draft or it's or i don't know if this is at the river's first draft gallery this is on her website this is her website of all of her um they her work that she put together but yeah this series is very beautiful and abstract and like a little bit more deliberate just because they're in costumes and stage and there's dancing yeah. in some of them. Like a yeah, lot of them yeah, look yeah. like modernish. Like it'll be three people in kind of brightly colored togas in that same kind of green wilderness space, like looking like they're doing this rhythmic dancing. It's very um, surreal. Yes, there are parts of it that look like something that if I was tripping in the forest and I turned around, I would just see it for a second and then be like, do you guys see that? And then like try to describe it to someone and they would be like, you're insane. I'd be like, no, I saw it. The lady in the coconut is real. Um, amazing. I mean, all this stuff is amazing. I was, yeah, I also went on kind of a deep dive on her art, but the Dracula is ready when you are, I think is one of my favorite things I've ever seen. Oh my goodness. That's what I mean. Like there's even for her to have, I feel like she took her time with art. Yeah. Mm. Like in the way that she speaks about it, I, there seems to be like no sense of urgency for Ugh. she's like, yeah, it came to me and then I made it and then people didn't pay attention to it, but that's fine. Like she, you know what I mean? The way yeah. that she kind of moves about the things that she makes in the art are she's just is going to make it whether you pay attention now or in 20 years. And especially yeah. now I feel like she believes in her. Now she's seen the evidence of it so much that I feel like she'll just keep making stuff. And then it, like, I'm about to talk about another piece that like, Oh, that'll probably be more relevant in another 15 years. You know, what were you well, say she is that? without ego, which is so rare in the art mm. world because I think so much of what we do is wrapped in ego, you know, even, I mean, myself, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I need to get in this gallery and I want to do this. And like, my identity is artist. And like, it is difficult 
to exist as an artist in the world and not feel like your value is tied to your artistic success. And so I think she's someone who is without that. And that's amazing. <laughs> like, that's so yes. incredible and beautiful. Nice. Yeah. Well, I was going to say actually kind of the opposite, though, because like I get I just get like nothing but rejection letters <laughs> and half of them are like, we hope that this doesn't mean you will stop making art because you should continue to make art. And I'm like, there are people that can just stop. Stop. Like, <laughs> there is such a. Yeah. Where yep. it's just like, wait, because I have to do this because my brain won't ever shut up. Yep. Like, I don't exactly. have a choice. I do not do anything I don't have to. Like and there are people, anything. Yeah, there are people who can get rejected and then be like, well, I'm never doing that again. And it's I'm like borderline making this against my will. It's like <laughs> I'm possessed until this is done. So exactly. it's happening. Yep. No, and so like it's just it's so interesting to kind of see the difference between like people who do make because that is just the driving force of their life and people who make because they want to be Andy Warhol. Like, mm. there's just such a huge... Which absolutely, even you saying that sentence is like, oh yeah, how long could you possibly last? Yeah. If you were, I that your only goal is to be that level, but you have no meaning behind anything yeah your only meaning is to be that successful not to like uh express anything yeah yeah you're uh, twisting in the wind so what are you even drawing from to create anything what has already sold you know what i mean like yeah you have no passion to make up anything like absolutely the first time that didn't work you'd be like oh well i quit because it didn't work and this is done yeah exactly (laughs) exactly No, so, like, I think that's something people don't understand about creative endeavors is, like, even if you are not getting recognized, you're still going to be making things if that is how your brain is wired. You're still going to be moving through. So, like, she's making stuff and just, like, well, nobody's looking at it. Who cares? I have to keep doing this. God, if I didn't have to worry about money, it would be amazing. Like... (laughs) Oh, like I yeah, literally no. like, oh my God, uh, money is stupid and I hate it. Uh, but yeah, I, t- I totally <laughs> get that. Yeah. Um, so the last one I'm going to tell you about, cause I seriously just had to pick ones that I liked the best, but she has other amazing works that I would love for people to check out. Um, but this last one I really liked, it's called Persistent. And it's like a lady in a blue shirt looking into something. And I'll explain Mm -hmm. it in a second. But you see it? Okay. So on New Year's Eve in 2007, a multi-ethnic hip-hop dance club in Davenport, Texas, um, that that operated for five years, was closed down by the landlord for attracting, quote, the wrong crowd. Oh. So Persistent, her project um, for Art Space in San Antonio, is her first video installation. And it's super cool. It's uh, It was a, a generously funded residency and she was able to exper- experiment as a quote reactive artist. So she chose to make herself open to the stimulus of a new place and situation because mm. um, she had only been to Texas 
once before. Um, but she was connected to the state through her second marriage. I love that they're just, oh, by the way, she was married. None of these people have mattered because she's just been out here making art and crushing it. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And like being um, an incredible writer, uh, both in an academic sense and for Rolling Stone. I've just been like, like dodging breast cancer and discovering Bob Marley. I really don't have time for whatever's been going on in her personal life. I'm so sorry. But normalize <laughs> not um, naming the husbands of powerful women. <laughs> Oh, oh shit! For it's real. <laughs> we don't need them. Yeah, and I did just so you all know, and people listening know, I straight up was like family, looking up like more personal things, and it's like it is about the work. Like that yeah. is what people write about, <laughs> and it's probably because it's like other uh, women and feminists writing about how phenomenal she is, and that's what they care about too. But it's like I look, y'all. They really are of no concern to anyone that writes about her. Um, yeah. But yeah, she, um, but that was her connection to Texas as a state. But, um, so the piece is you walk into a room. So where that woman is, it's like a framed, it looks like a dimly lit, like a wind wall of windows. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. a wall you can see through mm -hmm. a pink framed and you can see, I was, uh, there's a video of it that shows it kind of a little bit better of like a slow pan, but it's basically looks like an empty club. That's an empty room playing audio from the club. So you can hear music, you can hear people talking, you can oh. hear all these things. But the only thing that's actually in the room is like, there's a disco ball on the floor. There's a couple chairs knocked over. It looks like a place that's kind of abandoned because a lot of the kids that used to go there to hang out when they closed it down, they took a lot of the furniture because they needed it. Like everyone that hung out there was just like misfit kids and yeah. that, you know what I mean? were coming up and stuff. So, um, when this was taken away from them, they were like, well, we need this stuff. <laughs> and they took yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you kind of can hear the faint ghostly idea of what a club would have been. Like if you like went in the bathroom at a club and closed the door, it's like that faint, like bass hum and people talking yeah. and the people dancing on the walls are holograms of people that used to go to the club dancing oh my God. and actually like having a good time. So that's what that lady in the blue shirt is looking at. It's like that's amazing. an empty club. You hear the music and then you can see all of these kids doing what they used to do in this empty space wow. um so that was the one that i thought like i want to see how this piece evolves as we talk about spaces that have been gentrified or oh, booted out yeah. in anticipation of gentrification um, i do i feel bad but the way that the screenshot is taken like the uh -huh. still image of all these dancers it reminds me of that lady who's like i am Annette and I will be your hip hop dance teacher. And then <laughs> oh my god, I know who you're talking about too. She's so funny. Where but she's honestly, just this like the way German the, lady. Not the way they dance. Like literally, they can't dance. The way those images look, it has a brokenness to it where it looks like the spinny thing. You know yes. what I'm talking about? That's yes. that's what it I thought this was. Yeah. When I first saw it, it looks like that, but I don't know if they're projections because they're kind of all around the room. Um, but it yeah, that's what they kind like, of move like that. It's a little yeah, jerky. It does. It almost looks like they are projections. 
Yeah, that was her most recent piece I found that when you hear it, when you watch the video of that, because again, it's on her website that she built herself when she learned about the internet and it's still great. Um, but you can hear it and you're like, oh, wow. Like it made me be like, oh, yeah, I love this. Yeah. Um, so um, Lorraine says, I was one of the first black artists to identify themselves as a performance artist. So for that reason, I think I consider myself very avant-garde. She's always been yeah. described as the consummate ins. <laughs> she's been dis- uh, she's been described as the consummate insider outsider throughout her life. Her work would um, would go without proper recognition for more than forty years, but she never seems afraid to have her work not received well. And time has only proven that any dismissal of her work is from lack of foresight. It's almost like never really feeling accepted gives you the freedom to not be constrained by societal roles. Wow. So that was my like kind of what I was trying to get at earlier where I was like her never feeling a part of anything is why you're able to do all this because none of you people a hundred percent connect with me anyway. Yeah. So why would I not do? Yeah. So I was reading this being like, man, I keep accidentally picking people like myself. Um, but (laughs) I love it. Mademoiselle Bourgeoisie Noir her first public performance remains her best known work at 86. She received her first museum solo exhibition at the Brooklyn museum entitled both and which um, ended just as the publication of two collections of her work released by Duke university and dancing Fox's press. So this is what I'm talking about when I say like she put up her website and people were just like, what? And it's just like this snowball of stuff through like the night from like mid nineties to 2000, like to now, basically like early two thousands. It just like keeps coming. But that's when kind of people start seeing all of these works. Her art was featured in the studio museum in Harlem from 2015 to 2016, where assistant curator Amanda Hunt asserted that, um, O'Grady, quote, affirm the readiness of Harlem's residents to see themselves as works of art. Wow. Uh, O'Grady, O'Grady said, from the moment I began making art until recently, my work had a dual emphasis, my personal life experience and also larger political points. Um, in 2009, she, she was given a one person exhibit in the U. Oh, at Art Basel in Miami Beach. And um, was one of 55 artists to be selected in 2010 for the Whitney Banal. How do you say how do you say Biennial? Banal? Biennale. Biennale. There we go. So, yeah. So it's just more, you know, acclaim like she's just keeps getting her due, but just way late. So she was honored with. Um, the Wellesley College Alumni Achievement Award in 2017. It's like one of their biggest awards that they can give us a former student, apparently. And she now lives and works in the meatpacking district of New York City. And also her name appears in the lyrics of the Latigi Gray song, Hot Topic. And I thought that was cool. Wow. Um, And I'll end with this. Uh, O'Grady said in 2016, I think art's first goal is to remind us that we are human, whatever that is. I suppose the politics in my art could be to remind us that we are all human. That's beautiful. And that's Lorraine O'Grady. I love her. She's so badass. She's amazing. That's what I mean. Like I still, I'm going to like continue to keep learning about her because this is just like, 
me picking the most important pieces like to me even and mm-hmm. things like that. But she, yeah, you know, it wasn't perfect. It was kind of messy. Sorry for anyone that is really in a chronological order, but no, I love Lorraine. No, no. <laughs> I think this was also, a great can approach. Can you repeat, can you repeat that quote just one more time for me? Yeah. yeah. I think art's first goal is to remind us that we are human, whatever that is. I suppose the politics in my art could be to remind us that we are all human. God, I love that. Okay. That's really good. <laughs> I think she's And that's what I mean. A- As a black woman that was born when she was born to be mm-hmm. able to maintain an openness and to be that person, especially in the things that we're talking about, how we feel right now with things that yeah. are happening in like the wild decisions that are being made around us by the Supreme Court and stuff it becomes even harder and it can absolutely be interpreted as a weakness or rolling over. But I feel like she is a perfect indication that like she started by letting people know that there was a louder, more disruptive way to do it. But even that started with her passing out chrysanthemums. Like she's (laughs) never without, you know what I mean? A, love that I think she knows is necessary for the common goal. Like she's like, you can be mad and it makes sense to be mad. But if your actual thing is understanding and realizing commonalities between us, then there has to be another layer to it. And there is another, a bunch of diptychs that people say are like more jarring and stuff. And it's like, kind of just seeing two split things that would make you think like two totally different families and one thinking like Norman Rockwell compared to a black family or whatever that looks like. And people were like, some of her diptychs are disturbing. And I was like, what? It's a picture. It's a, it's disturbing because it's showing you a reality too close to each other. That's to happen at the same time. These are both truths that exist in the same space. And that was disrupting to people. But I feel like she's constantly trying to force a comfort in that that she thinks is necessary for us to understand each other. And I agree. So I think that there is something about her work and her spirit as a person where she just has so much inner strength to not get angry, to not, you know, like I, I think that continuing to exist and to say, I belong here in a world that is telling you that you're less than requires so much strength and I think that's something that is so beautiful about the way that she went about making art for a white woman to tell her that black people don't belong in avant-garde art and for her to make something that is so truly joyous like there is no revenge in that piece you know what I mean absolutely so it does take a certain kind of reserve to hear something that would make you that mad and be like well this is what I'm gonna do with it yeah (laughs) what an amazing person (laughs) like what just an amazing human incredible thank you so much Yay! You can listen to her speaking. She speaks at schools all the time. Like, she's great to listen to. Like, I, that's what I'm saying. My attention span is trash. I don't listen to anything. I'm bad. Or I listen. I listen to podcasts, but, like, mostly about, like, murder and history. Yeah. I am horrible (laughs) at reading. Like, I'm not that person. And I am so captivated by this woman and the information that she puts out there and seems to just be so freeing with it. Like, she did a, and I feel like she is still that regular where, Uh, She did a 
radio piece where the woman is listing all of the recognition she's gotten since the 2000s and all this stuff. And then she goes on and says, you didn't say I was from Boston. And she goes, I was about to say that. Like, that's all. <laughs> she was totally ignoring all of her like awards and stuff. But she goes, you didn't say I was from Boston yet. And like that. Yeah, that's, that's important so to me. That's the people funny. need to know. That's so that's funny. Lorraine. Oh my I God. love her. Is her like, writing... what a beautiful person. <laughs> Is her writing on her website? Where can people access her essays? She has books. So oh. there's books on her books, but she wrote in at hold on because I have the name Bookception. Um, send me the links. This is also a great time to mention that we do still have a uh, an Amazon wish list for Podvon Guard. Yeah. Oh yeah! If you guys want to help us buy books so that we can don't have to pay for books when we research these episodes, that'd be cool. Yes, but okay. Oh. So writing in space is the one that's by Aruna D'Souza, and that is about her. That is the one that um the second one that I want. But yeah, so. Thank you all so much for listening to me talk about Lorraine O'Grady. If you like um, listening to us talk about art and want to hear more, please follow us at Pavantgarde, P-O-D-V-A-N-T-G-A-R-D-E on Instagram and Twitter. And um, we also have a Patreon that you should also absolutely join because we'll have new secret episodes on there now. Before it was like, oh, fun extras about story times and things that people don't all need to hear that have to do with like, I don't know, underwear malfunctions and things like that that I have. But now lives. it's full art episodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It used to be too hot for TV stuff. Now it's like full on additional episodes. Uh, so yeah, get on that Patreon and there'll be links to both Lorraine O'Grady's writings and work and our Patreon in the comments below. And if you like me as a person, Katrina, who talked the most this episode, you can follow me <laughs> at Katrina Savad, um, S-I-V-A-D on everything on Instagram and Twitter and my website and everything is the same. And it's just Davis backwards. So thanks. Perfect. It, if you want to send us a physical package, you can also do that oh, yeah. at uh, one, send it to Podvant Guard at 1001 Fremont Avenue, South Pasadena, California, 91030. Um, and if you like me as a human person, uh, you can follow me on all the things at Andrea Gazetta. Um, I am have a website, andreagazetta.com. I have like prints and stuff for sale. I have a Patreon for myself. Andrea Gazetta, you can get free stickers. Well, they're not free. You're in the Patreon, but you get it. Uh, it's cool. It's fun. Check it out. Come hang out. Don't forget to plug your pet portrait commissions. Oh, yeah. I'll paint your dog <laughs> if you give me money. And they look pretty fucking sick. You can check them out on Instagram. You can check them out on my website. So you can just buy those straight through my website. I'm also doing these like... I have, oh, I guess I have shows coming up. Uh, I have a show opening at La Luce de Jesus on July 16th if you're in Los Angeles and you want to check that out. 
Um, I also have a few shows. Uh, I have a show opening at Brea Gallery July, I believe, 23rd. Both those shows uh, are terrariums that I'm painting, and they're super cool. You can check those out on Instagram if you want. Um, and I will also be showing with Giant Robot coming up and... Um, another i'll be doing an andy warhol show so the cool shows coming up check those out art things if you like art that looks like lisa frank got sad (laughs) 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 oh yeah you have so many shows coming up that's awesome yeah, I did lots see of that. group shows. Oh yeah, because I tried to go to the opening of uh, Andrea's one the last time we recorded, but I went to the wrong gallery. I'm so sorry, Katrina. I should not been your more fault specific. at all. I just went to the one that you had posted the most recently, and was like, I don't need any more information. I know exactly what's happening. Nope, like I didn't ask you anything. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> gallery, got it. This is the one she posted. This is where I'm going. <laughs> incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm so done oh, it was I love great though that. um we have uh amazon list, which i actually don't know how to plug because i is it under my email i'm really not sure i'll figure that out and get i was it gonna say to you look for but... a link and send it to me and i'll put it in all the descriptions perfect yeah, 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 yeah. there's gotta be a yeah. i've never done one but there's know... gotta be <laughs> Well, I know I've sent y'all the link because oh, okay. I was like, add books to it, but I'll find it and resend it. Yes. Absolutely no problem. Um, and then if you want weird Bigfoot boudoir photos of me with random shit that I make, uh, you can follow me at Goonie Bird Crafts where I forget that I have a physical body. And so I take <laughs> photos where like, my feet are in it or I show up behind the blankets that I make or you know whatever she looks like a very crafty ghost (laughs) exactly it's yeah what apparition made this beautiful blanket exactly uh and then I post uh photos of like date nights and weird coffee cups that Keith and I make each other uh and stuff like that at the Goonie Bird I think that's it. Yeah, I don't really do social media. I haven't really posted. Uh, anyway, love you guys. Jordan will get <laughs> I on. I love you guys so much. Jordan will get on ours if you write her love notes. That's the, the that's the extent of her social media is us seeing stuff and being like, Jordan, get on the IG. There's good notes for you. And then she'll get on social media. Yeah. So if you follow <laughs> yeah. us on IG, you can maybe every other week get a DM from Jordan. Um, exactly. Yeah. Thank you all. Tell Jordan how much me. you love her and her tattoos every day, please. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> but uh, that's our show. Thank you guys so much. We love you. Bye. 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 Hey guys, Andrea here. Um, I'm asking for your help a little bit today because Jordan, Katrina, and I are all comedians and artists who don't have any experience editing sound. And because this is a sound-based medium, we have 
asked an editor to help us with our episodes. Um, we had a few issues early on with some of the early recordings, and we're working on getting those sorted out. Um, and part of that is just having an audio engineer. So in order to be able to actually pay him and pay him a fair rate, uh, we're asking for your help. We've set up a Patreon, patreon.com slash podvantgarde. And our goal is that we can pay him not from our own pockets, but from the resources of the show itself, which means we need your help. Um, we're also planning on starting to release bonus episodes. We'll start with one a month. Um, and as that Patreon rate increases, we'd like to eventually expand that to a bonus episode every week. And the bonus episodes will be more, um, a little bit more loose fit. We'll be covering art, uh, like current events and weird things that happen because there's a lot of like weird stuff going on in the art world right now, um, especially around NFTs, especially around AI. And I think it's really interesting and worth talking about, but we just need to be able to pay someone to edit that bonus content. Um, I would also say that in terms of the time cost, you know, Katrina, Jordan, and I all are supporting ourselves outside of this show. This show takes a lot of time. I'm probably spending at least three days a week with every episode just researching. We're buying books. Um, Katrina's editing the time codes. She's building our website. She's doing all our social media. Jordan is also researching her own episodes. And my goal for the Patreon is just that it can become something that you know we're not looking to get rich I don't think that's ever been our goal I don't think we ever think that could be our goal but what I'd like to be able to happen eventually is that the Patreon can become a way for us to just pay ourselves a living wage for the time that we invest into this show my experience uh, with cult podcast um, is that it's really hard to make a show every single week and not have other financial resources. So what I want is that this Patreon can eventually become a financial resource for us. It can help us support ourselves and it can help us to continue putting the show out so that we don't get burnt out and want to pull our hair out. Um, we love you so much and we think that the show is really important. I personally think that we need more podcasts that cover history and art history from a feminist, anti-colonial queer perspective and that's where we're coming from as artists and as art historians and comedians we love you we love this show thank you so much for supporting it that's again at patreon.com slash and thanks guys <laughs>